Hello, everyone. It's G3. And on this week's Green Marbles, I have Mike Edwards of Weiss sitting across the table from me. I've asked Mike to come on the show to talk about the presidential election cycle theory and whether or not the unique dynamics of the newly convened 118th Congress will impact long-standing market trends that often occur in a third year of a presidential term. So please check important disclosures at the end of the episode. And a final note, for those people who have rated the show, I offer you my thanks. It really does make a difference. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording. Mike, fantastic to have you. I'm excited for this one, G3. Me too, because we are talking about politics, policy, their impact on the markets, and a particular theory that I know you've done some work on that I think could be very, very relevant as the year progresses. Let's jump right into it. Mike, if you could explain to us why everybody in the markets should be aware of the presidential election cycle theory. So, and the reason, one of the reasons we're talking about this is as we sort of get through the phase of outlooks for 2023 and this sort of thing, one of the causes, and Jordy's talked about this a fair amount, for being constructive on U.S. markets and in general is that we're in the third year election cycle. And according to the, I believe it was the Stock Traders Almanac that created this in the first instance, the theory espouses that the third year of the cycle generally shows very strong performance relative to other years. And that the thinking behind that, to the extent that a, a theory in analytics has to have a narrative attached to it, is that presidents sort of do the work, the heavy lifting in the first two years, and then they seek reelection, obviously in the fourth year, but that it's the third year that forms the base for that. So this is when they have to go please, in this case, through positive stock returns. And does the data tell us that this theory works better during the first term of a president's or during the first term of a president versus the second term? And does party affiliation in any way have an impact on it? Neither of those seem to matter very much. And I'd remind that for the most part, we can think of one or two exceptions, but for the most part, themselves getting reelected versus keeping their party in power is a similar imperative. So analytically, that, that shouldn't matter too much. I see. So what does matter? I should start by saying that the data is very compelling, right? So... Why do I say that? What's compelling about it? Well, the third year, and this is data going back, I'm, I'm talking about S&P returns from 1928 on. The average return for the third year in the cycle, which in this case would be 2023, is 13.5% compared to the overall average across four years of 7.7%. And I think as importantly, the batting average, as it were, the percentage of up years on the third year is 78% which versus in the first two years is 58 and 54 respectively. So that's pretty solid performance, as it were, for this signal. Well, it sounds like based upon those stats, not to say that a fund would ever do this, but if it said, okay, we're basically just going to buy on the last day of the second year and sell at the end of the third year, and we'll look and see how we perform over the course of 20 years, it probably would do okay as a strategy. I'm not sure you're going to get paid two and 20 for that, but, <laughs> but 
or three and 30 for that matter. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. For our purposes, I think what's more interesting is to sort of dissect why this might adhere and why it might not. So if we dig just a layer deeper, one possible question we could ask, is it the third year that matters or the second year that matters? Because another thing that stands out is that the second year in the presidential election cycle is very poor. And that's a, I, I mentioned 13 and percent for year three, it's 3.3% for year two. And not only that, and this becomes relevant to our current circumstance, of all the negative years, negative returning years for the S&P since 1928, year two represents 11 of the 31, so a little more than a third. But of all the, what I would call materially negative years, so greater than 10% down years, of which there have been 20, year two represents 13 of those, so roughly two-thirds. That's remarkable. And I think sitting here coming off of one such material down year in 22, we could reasonably ask, okay, well, is what we're really capturing in this signal, is it a rebound in year three from poor performance in year two? And one other powerful signal that the data tells us is that sequential down years. So in the instance of a year down year two for this discussion, what's the likelihood of a down year three? Well, in this series, there are only eight sequential down years, meaning two down years in a row. And of those, only one of them is there a sequential down year with the third year being the sequential down year. And that was 1931 in the Great Depression. So with that asterisk, it basically doesn't happen. So if I boil all of that down, both the simple version of the cycle theory and then this sort of enhanced version of in the event you've had a very bad second year, I think it's actually more relevant and it's a fairly powerful signal. If we had what I would call a normal 118th Congress, I suppose I would be even more excited about the potential there for markets to do reasonably well this year. But I'm wondering from your perspective, to what extent might that trump the powerful tailwinds of the election cycle theory? Yeah, obviously this is the pertinent question in terms of, is this a, an exception or will it adhere to the rule? And I think we could also, even before diving into the substance of this Congress, we could also specify that you could say, is what we are actually seeing in the historical data and the cycle theory, is that actually about presidential performance or is it congressional? Because one other feature of the data is that if you separate out instances where I've labeled it as a trifecta, meaning a single party controls the Senate, the House and the presidential, that happens very frequently in years one and two of the cycle, roughly two thirds of the time and infrequently in years three and four. So roughly one third of the time. Divided government is more likely in in years three and four. In the latter two years of a presidential cycle. So could it be that the same data we're seeing, is it actually just rewarding divided government? Or the meaning the market prefers gridlock? That becomes a very relevant question for, is the 118th Congress an exception or will it adhere to the rule? We've certainly checked the box on gridlock as the house has flipped and even what we've seen with the speaker drama, like we can be sure that the one feature of this Congress is not going to be getting too much done legislatively. (laughs) I think that is a safe bet. Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room. And I made that pun (laughs) intentionally. Can you give a quick overview 
of the concessions that Speaker McCarthy needed to offer in order to secure the gavel. These are very relevant. I don't want to get too far into the arcane details, but I think since we're going to do large mammal references, <laughs> the elephant in the room has the jabs at establishment Republicans being rhinos, right? Right. Is McCarthy now the acronym that some have used? Is, is he now a spino, meaning a speaker in name only? <laughs> the simple answer is yes, that if the job of the speaker is to shepherd his caucus, this is going to be a shepherd without a staff. Like, not going to be very effective. And the reason is from these concessions, what the House Freedom Caucus and for those who tuned into C-SPAN during the speaker votes and everything else, the Freedom Caucus for the most part is not exactly, but is the 20 functionally for our purposes is the 20 folks who were voting against McCarthy or voting for alternatives through that process. What they won functionally is a check on bipartisanship, meaning they, in the concessions that McCarthy has granted to get the votes in the end, he gave away his ability to go across the aisle and get Democratic votes to pass, to offset the Freedom Caucus, to pass legislation that may be difficult and that those 20 or even five or six of them wouldn't vote for. And these include obviously the motion to vacate that I think people is fairly well publicized, meaning a single member can raise effectively hitting the eject button on the speaker. They also include the separation of the budget process, the appropriation process into at least 12 different bills instead of what's called an omnibus or a consolidated budget. Right. And that gives obviously enhances veto power and prevents things being attached. You There's can also a, hide little things in when it's a big omnibus. Bill. And there are more concessions made that prevent that happening. I mean, there's a very long list and they all sort of work in the same direction here. The one that I think is actually the most powerful, but is a little arcane, so it doesn't get in that much attention, is the concession made to what's called the Rules Committee. And basically, any bill that goes out of another committee and makes its way to the House floor has to go through the Rules Committee first, basically blessing its form. And McCarthy gave three seats out of 13 and three seats out of the Republicans nine on the Rules Committee to members of the House Freedom Caucus. And the significance of that is there's six Democrats. Anything to get onto the floor needs seven votes. And so those three votes are functionally blocking basically anything without Democratic votes from getting to the House floor. That could really gum up the works. For the most part, more mundane things, but obviously for must-pass bills, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it's an issue as well. Well, before we move on to that, we have a couple of other things I want to just ask you about. So a lot of ink has been spilled over this motion to vacate. And I'm just wondering if, in fact, that nuclear option is used by a member, what happens next and what is the voting threshold associated with that threat actually becoming a reality? So the threat is powerful because, as we learned through the original speaker drama, the speaker squeaker, there is no alternative. There's nobody stepping up who wants to lead this challenging. Uh, we used to say that the Democrats were the big tent. Right now, the Democrats in the House look pretty unified. It's the Republicans that look like a big tent. The function of that motion to vacate is it forces a vote with a majority threshold onto the floor. 
So in that instance, a small number of Republicans can be very impactful, assuming the Democrats play ball, as it were, with stripping the speaker of his speakership. This was the toppling with higher thresholds. It's the reason Paul Ryan had stepped down. And this is another way that a very small number can gum up the works, basically. Because of the assumption that if a motion to vacate is put before the House, every Democrat would vote aye and X number of Republicans would vote aye, the Freedom Caucus, and then McCarthy would basically lose his job. Correct. It starts to make Congress look more like Parliament in the UK, where you can basically replace the leader at will. Right. And create pandemonium in the process because then we would have to go through this whole circus act again to find somebody new to lead. Pandemonium is one way of saying it. And I don't think it will be if and when it happens, frankly, more likely when than if. I don't think it's going to be pandemonium from a market's perspective. And I think you have to also take the perspective of the Freedom Caucus itself, which is perfectly comfortable with very weak leadership. I mean, that nihilistic approach to governing is a feature, not a bug. Well, you know, I'm glad that you made that point, because if essentially what you're saying is that Speaker McCarthy wields a gavel made of clay, and by clay, I don't mean Henry Clay. And yes, I did prepare that line. We have nihilism almost as a certainty here. Markets may like gridlock, but the question I have for you is, will the markets like nihilism? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a critical distinction. And I think just coming back from where we started, I think it's very clear that markets like gridlock and checks and balances and non-overreach. I would say we're going to find out with respect to nihilism. I do think that this dismantling of overreach and dismantling of many of the normal, what we can come to consider to be the normal functions of government in general and Congress specifically, are they're going to be under threat. But I think a lot of this is performative. Just to be clear, a lot of the work that the House is going to do, Hunter Biden's laptop, leaving Afghanistan. Now, obviously, the comparison of the document storage from Biden and Trump and that sort of thing. It's not funny. I'm chuckling just because of the parallelism. This is going to be the work of this Congress. None of it's going to matter for markets. It's all stage setting and it's all brand building. And I think it's obviously not the first time we've seen this, but it's brand building as much for individual members of Congress and their own, you could almost call it celebrity status or that sort of thing. But that this empowers fundraising and this sort of thing. And I apologize for the cynicism here around the ways in which money drives politics. But that is absolutely where the sort of end goal or the audience for these performances are. But that's not action that we need to concern ourselves with. I think where markets can get concerned with the nihilistic component is performative inaction that actually becomes consequential inaction. Well, and there's not that much of it. But there is some. one thing, and we all know it. It's the potential for debt ceiling drama. But before we go there, I mm -hmm. just have to ask you whether or not it has market impact or not. I just have to ask you about George Santos. Can you connect why McCarthy's tenuous grip on the speaker job most likely means that Santos amazingly is going to serve out his term. The reason why you have not seen McCarthy join those that have called for him to step down has been that he needs every vote. Like every vote matters. You could make another argument about, well, we don't 
turn on those that have supported us and whatever and party unity. I, I don't have a view on that. What I think just coming back to the acknowledging my own cynicism for a second, but coming back to the point on, well, let's just call it what it is, performative nihilism. I think the popular imagery and narratives around cynicism have really evolved in the last 30 years. I want to go back to what, at least for me, was a very memorable movie in 1992, The Distinguished Gentleman with Eddie Murphy, where the character in the movie basically not quite lied, but he had the same name as the Jeff Johnson, or I think it was, yep. you know, yep. comically Thomas Jefferson Johnson, yep. not to be confused. Well, anyway, he, he, you know, ran on that name to replace a congressman who died and then got elected. And then originally it was supposed to be a money grab. And then he saw the light and reformed things, right? That was sort of like a mainstream acceptable, as it were, make a movie about it version of cynicism about in the vein of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I don't, know, I don't want to say white lies, but here we have George Santos who's basically the Chuck Norris of fabulism and lying and whatever that is. It's not that it's being celebrated necessarily. There's no avoiding that it's being spotlighted, especially by the press all the time. And we're sort of learning to live with that. I think that's a reflection of the all-time low congressional approval ratings. And just, unfortunately, for the sort of broader arc of American politics, just bashing into our heads that Congress is filled with liars and bad actors, like in real life, not in the movies. So I think the contrast is important in terms of, again, like I said, that kind of cynicism towards the broader mission here. You think if I made up a Baruch College volleyball sweatshirt, I'd have a good side hustle? <laughs> well, you definitely pick up some followers on Instagram, I even if they were bots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I would have to think about that. Maybe you can go in with me on that if you want, Mike. I'd, that would be fun. You'd have to do Baruch uh, knee pads as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the big drama, the big thing people are talking about, of course, is the debt ceiling. Let's start from the beginning here. What's at stake when does it start to bite? And talk to us a bit about the key dates. So I just threw three questions yep, at fine. you, but I'll remind you of them if you forget it. And, and we're, let's tackle those now. I just want to, before we overcommit to the debt ceiling being the thing, I would remind us that there are some other must-pass things, including the farm bill and government funding. And we'll come back to the second in particular, because I do think that there's a spotlight on the debt ceiling appropriately, but it's not the only thing. So when is the right question, I believe. Right now, we have this week, you know, by the time our listeners are hearing this episode, we will have passed the Thursday official or technical breach of the debt ceiling. And now we're into extraordinary measures that Yellen has said can work through early June. Early June is probably a bit of stage setting as well. There's likely to be an ability to go longer than that. That depends on tax receipts during tax season and and really just the degree to which the sort of cash injection in April is impactful. So we will probably exhaust those extraordinary measures and really functionally hit the debt ceiling so that we have a real deadline that I think the bid ask on that is probably July at October. Okay. And the relevance of that is going to bring back the other must pass bill is uh, government funding. So the government funding runs out as it always does, unless a multi-year is passed at the end of September. So we will have the need to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government open on October 1. 
and we'll do the shutdown thing again, right? Or the looming threat of that. So the relevant question is, are these two things conjoined? Can they, will they happen at the same time? Or is the debt ceiling deadline going to be earlier than that, which, you know, maybe for the sake of discussion, let's call it July, July-ish, July 4, something like that. And you have to have taken action by then. But there are extraordinary measures that the Treasury Secretary can employ to buy some time, no? Well, they're employing them starting now. Right. But I'm saying, so you're saying even that only gets you to about the 4th of July. The answer is we don't know. Okay. And, and I would acknowledge that these can be manipulated. But I mean, we have seen this. We were talking about congressional movies. We've seen this movie before in 2011. This is not a new, the exhaustion, as it were, of ex- extraordinary measures is not a new phenomenon. Okay. So from your vantage point, this is a really big deal. And it's a really big deal that is headed our way towards the middle of the year. It's a big deal in the context of what we're talking about. I mean, to be clear, as we zoom out for a second, the reason this is a big deal is a complete own goal by our government. We created a crisis to, or a potential crisis, a sort of Damocles to restrain government borrowing, right? We didn't need to do that, but we did. And so it's not like there's some external force that is creating these sorts of deadlines. I'm bringing that in because coming back to my use of the word performative, this is the rallying cry for the government restraint, those interested in government restraint. And where we are now is that that is a powerful tool because we allowed it to be powerful. And the way around it, well, it requires at an absolute minimum nine Republican votes in the Senate and five Republican votes in the House. At an absolute minimum, there is no way around that apart from unilateral action by the Biden administration. And that's when you hear about things like, which I don't think are going to happen, but things like a platinum coin and and then things like the trillion dollar coin, all that stuff. Literally, in this case, it would have to be a multi-trillion dollar coin or multiples of them. But yes. All right. Well, let me just ask you what the conventional wisdom holds on this, as you well know. There's going to be a big fight. There are going to be a lot of very, very nasty headlines, the Sturm and Drang, if you will. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. I think that was good. Thank you. Will occur, but inevitably at the end of the day, somehow, some way, leaders will come together and magically raise the debt ceiling. Everyone will get their pound of flesh, I should say, so they can go back to their districts and say, look what I delivered. And then we'll move on from there, wash, rinse, repeat, etc., etc. What is the thorn in my side as I think about that is that we don't have conventional politicians, at least I don't think we do, in the Freedom Caucus. At the same time, what gives me some hope, and maybe you're going to tell me that this optimism is misplaced, is that we have a problem solvers caucus of 20 plus Democrats and 20 plus Republicans who together form Quite an interesting block. So talk to me about whether or not this potentially becomes much ado about nothing, where the reasonable politicians in both parties get together with Kevin McCarthy and some composite of Republicans and Democrats and say, shutting down our government, defaulting on our debt is not in America's interest. Talk to me about whether or not there is optimism that members will coalesce around that. Yeah. So I want to make sure that we're very clear on the following, which is that what you just described is the inevitable destination. 
the drama here is not about the destination. We will, in some form or another, raise the debt ceiling and pay the interest on the debt, period. We will get there, which is why ultimately I don't think that this debt ceiling question is a reason why the election cycle theory isn't going to work this year and whatever. It's not the destination. It's the path there. It's the travel. That's where the drama lives. And to your point on unconventional politicians, that's where the attention happens. And this is all about attention, which is why I keep using this word performative. I don't think there's a lot here in terms of, in this case, it's not going back to your districts with pork and earmarks and this sort of thing. It's frankly not my favorite image, but it's collecting scalps, right? Getting some cuts, right, on the Republican side. Getting some cuts. And when I say, I mean people as well. It may be that in order to get, you know, you have to, you need new leadership. Anybody who stands in our way, we're going to topple and this sort of thing. There are paths there. And I think your description of the Problem Solvers Caucus and an acknowledgement, and I think this is what you're getting, an acknowledgement that, well, we have to find some kind of end around here for the now empowered, given the concessions made to the Speaker McCarthy made on the way to his speakership, that now empowered kind of blocking group, we have to find ways around that to raise the debt ceiling and to fund government and this sort of thing, because the terms that they've laid out are never going to be agreed to by the Biden administration and by the Senate. There has to be a workaround. What does that look like? There are a handful of options. I don't see how any of them doesn't involve Democrats, well, bipartisanship and Democrats sort of playing along to some extent and probably having to take some difficult votes and this sort of thing. That's where we'll start talking about, and this comes back to the timing point, options like that are very, very rarely used, like a discharge petition, which is would be forcing a bill onto the floor that wouldn't otherwise make it onto the floor. It has to be seasoned. It takes basically 37 legislative days until that's ripe. And that's a very long time in calendar days, by the way. And then you could get to a point where if you had something past the Senate and then had a handful of Republican votes and all Democratic votes, it could pass. These are the sorts of machinations. And I actually do think the discharge position is, petition excuse me, is probably one of the more likely paths through – well, <laughs> paths around and thus through the debt ceiling drama. There's a handful of them. You know, this is not the sort of thing where even if there were a playbook, it would not be sensible for it to be published right now because you're giving away the plays you're going to run to the defense, as it were. And in this case, the defense is Chip Roy and the the Freedom Caucus who've tried to engineer this blocking capability. That's where the drama lives. And for those who actually their eyes didn't blur over the last you know, two minutes of my describing this, right, that the actual process stuff is not that important. What is important is the ability for these groups to stand up and say, we are not going to let them get away with this anymore. And I'm quite sure that those speeches on the House floor are going to happen regardless of what procedural maneuvering goes on here. I think just to wrap up the overall discussion with where we started of what the markets care about, this is a watched pot now, right? We know those speeches are going to happen on the floor. We know the sword of Damocles is going to hang over the administration and the Congress and this sort of thing. So I think the ability to sort of shock the market with shutdowns and, and not passing, it's going to be much more limited because we're already focused on What it. does shake the market? What would need to happen for the markets to be shook? Well, if you accept the premise, the epistemological premise I started with, it would have to be something that I couldn't tell you about right now or it wouldn't be shocking. So right. to, be, to sort of object to the <laughs> object to the form of the question. 
But on this front, I think if there were no workarounds and the Freedom Caucus sort of picked up momentum and momentum in this case being more memberships and more membership and more cohesion, that could be problematic. And therefore, we could be what I think would be, I'll call it a, a worst case scenario in terms of the or a near worst case scenario is we find ourselves in the first days of October and you have a Republican leadership that is willing to pardon the graphic image, but willing to shoot the hostage, right? The Wall Street Journal editorial board put out a, an op-ed on, I think it was Monday of this week, in which I think the opening line was, the first rule of political negotiations is don't take hostages you're not willing to shoot. <laughs> well, in this case, I don't think it's the debt ceiling per se, because defaulting is terrible. Right. But if that happens in conjunction with a government shutdown, whether it's the numerous times in reality we've gone through this or the sort of Aaron Sorkin-esque performative, let's shut it down and then walks up to the hill and this sort of thing. This is in our imagination. There may be a willingness to do that. And you start to enter territory that is more fraught. So I, I could see that spilling over for a longer period. That would not be good. I'd like to think that at the end of the day, Joe Biden is going to invite his old Senate colleague, Mitch McConnell, over to the Oval Office. They're going to break out some Kentucky bourbon and they're going to figure out a way to each extract their political pound of flesh, but ultimately galvanize the country to come together. Am I being just completely idealistic there? No, I don't think so. But I think you're assuming that the bridge that has to be built is between McConnell and Biden. And it most definitely isn't. And I also choose the bridge imagery because amidst that speaker fight, McConnell and Biden were appearing together at literally a bridge in across the Ohio River. <laughs> really? <laughs> talking about celebrating the infrastructure bill and the things that can happen in a bipartisan spirit. The overall framework that I think we've laid out on this episode, which is really important, is that this debt ceiling discussion and the nihilism problem relative to presidential election cycle and theory and this sort of thing. It's not about Democrats versus Republicans. It is about the establishment and institutionalists versus I'm being pejorative when I say nihilist, but those who want to see government restrained massively, right? That's the battle. And it's a very small number in the latter category versus obviously a large number in the former. This is not the first time in America's history that this battle has played out in this way. But there are a lot of very new weapons, including social media and things like that, a new phenomena that could this time be different? Yeah, it could be different. But it's not because Republicans are generally not willing to work with Democrats. That is not the right framework. And therefore, this is not a McConnell-Biden problem. From the market's perspective, if the goal is low volatility and non-interruption, McConnell's an asset here. And by the way, McCarthy is an asset as well. You know, he doesn't want to see this happen. But he cannot facilitate a bipartisan solution to the debt ceiling problem for the reasons that we went through. So those are where these kind of obstacles live. It's a very small number that represent the sort of obstinate uh, volatility inducing wing. All right. On that note, Mike, thanks so much. It was fun. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. 
The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.